Right, let's, let's pray then. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for him and for your plan and purpose with us. And we pray that you will send him soon to establish your kingdom and to, to resolve all the issues that there are. We pray for our brothers and sisters in, in Ukraine and our situation there in Gaza and Israel. And we bring before you, Father, the fact that we are all human and we all have our aches and pains and Finally, we shall all sleep the sleep of death until we are resurrected. And we pray, Father, that through all these things that keep coming up in life, we might see your hand and that we might endure and that we will trust in you, that we will trust in you, Father, that in the end you mean good for us in our latter end. We pray, Father, for the whole situation in this world that we might be able to be a light and that you will give each of us meetings with people whom we can help to your son. And we pray that this week, we who are naturally so shy to talk to anybody else really about our faith, that we might meet others like that. We pray for all of us, Father, with fractured relationships, that you will, you will help us through your spirit to be as somehow as Jesus would have been. For his sake. Amen. Amen. Right, so last week I spoke about King David, that David was persecuted by Saul, he was on the run from Saul, and Saul was as jealous, sweet as jealous of David. And David's hiding in a cave, and Saul walks in. And David's hiding in the back of the cave, Saul goes to the toilet, remember we talked about how long it takes a bloke to go to the toilet, that he would have had five minutes maximum, and he could have killed him, but he didn't. He didn't. He said, no, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I will let, let this man go. And he cuts off a bit of his garment, and then afterwards he goes out and says, Saul, there's a bit of your garment here. I could have killed you, but I didn't. So he shows grace, which is this undeserved favor. That's chapter 24. Now we've got an incident in chapter 25, and then in chapter 26, again, Saul has the op- sorry, David has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He forgives him, lets him go. So, what happens here in chapter 25? Well, I'm going to read it through to you, because you may not, be, you may not have read this before. So I'm just going to read the story, and then we'll go back to it. <clears throat> there was a man in Maon who had property in Carmel. And the man was very wealthy. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. His name was Nabal, which in Hebrew means a fool. And his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but the man was harsh and mean. He belonged to the family of Caleb. David sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, peace to you and to your family and to all that you have. I have heard that you're shearing your sheep. Your shepherds have been with us, we didn't hurt them. Nothing of theirs was missing all the while they were in Carmel. Therefore, please give whatever you can to your servants and to your son David. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants who break away from their masters these days. Shall I then take my bread, my water, and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned and went back and told him all this. David said to his men, Every man put on his sword. Every man put on his sword, and David also put on his. 
about 400 men followed David and 200 stayed by the baggage. One of the young men told Abigail and Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he wailed at them. Now therefore consider what you should do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household. He's such a worthless fellow that one can't even speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread, two bottles of wine, five sheep ready dressed, five measures of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me, I'm following you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. As she rode on her donkey and came down in a valley, and there were David and his men coming towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely for nothing I've kept all this fellow's possessions in the wilderness so that nothing was missing. He has returned me evil for good. God deal with David severely if I leave one that pisseth against the wall. Now that's from the King James. When I was about 12 years old, that was like my favourite verse in the Bible. That um, the Bible in the King James talks about he who pisseth against the wall. I thought that was great. Now I'll come back to that in a minute. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from her donkey. She bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me be the blame. And please let your handmaid speak in your ears. Hear the words of your handmaid. Please pay no attention, my lord, to this worthless fellow Nabal. As his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is his nature. But I, your handmaid, didn't see your young men whom you sent. Now therefore, my lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has withheld you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now therefore let your enemies and those who seek evil to my lord be like Nabal. Let this gift which your servant has brought to my lord be given to the young men who follow my lord. Please forgive the sin of your handmaid, for Yahweh will certainly make for my lord a sure house, because my lord fights the battles of Yahweh. Let evil not be found in you in all your days. When Yahweh has done to my lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, then this will not be on your conscience, either that you've shed blood without cause, or that my lord has avenged himself. When Yahweh has dealt well with my lord, then remember your handmaid. David said to Abigail, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed is your discretion, and blessed are you for keeping me this day from the guilt of bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives and has withheld me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely there wouldn't have been left enabled by the morning light so much as one that pisseth against a wall. We'll come back to that. So David accepted from her what she brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. I've listened to your words and have granted your request. Abigail came to Nabal while he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of the king. Nabal's heart was merry, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing until the morning. In the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened, and his heart failed, and he became like a stone. About ten days after, Yahweh struck Nabal so that he died. When David heard Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed is Yahweh, who has upheld my cause against Nabal, and has kept back his servant from doing wrong. Yahweh has returned the wrongdoing of Nabal on his own head. David sent and asked Abigail to become his wife. She arose, bowed herself with her face to the earth, and said, Your handmaid is ready to be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Abigail went with the messengers of David and became his wife. David also had taken a Hinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Now, what's all this about? 
Just before this, David has had the chance to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He says, no, I will not do this. He shows him grace. And if we were sort of marking David out of ten, we would have said, oh, wow, you know, that's very good. Well done. You forgave. Well done, David. And it looks pretty good. But now, Nabal, when Nabal is drunk, is rude to David's servants. And he says, come on, guys, let's get your swords out. Let's go and kill Nabal, his wife, his kids, everything he's got. He's going absolutely overboard. It's like, imagine that you're in a pub and a drunk guy curses you. (coughs) Well, you don't go and get an automatic rifle, go round to the bloke's flat, kill him, his wife, his kids, his mother-in-law, his dogs and his cats. Because a bloke in a pub cussed you. You don't do that. That's not right. That is disproportionate response. And you see, that is what David is doing. He's going bonkers. He's going crazy. Straight after, he has just shown this great grace to Saul. Well, on one level, you can say, yeah, chapter 24 is very gracious to Saul. Well done. Chapter 25, oh, he was terrible. Chapter 26, he again forgives Saul. And is that not the path of human life? That we are strong for the Lord one minute, one day, next day, failure, next day, yeah, wonderful again. Yes, that is how it is. Um, And we long for the kingdom for when Jesus comes back so that we won't be like that, so that our faith, so that our spirituality will be, you know, be up all the time, not up and down all the time. One minute we're strong, next minute we're weak as water. But pushing further on this, he has just shown a huge grace in forgiving Saul, and then he gets cranky with Nabal, with a bloke who cussed him when the guy's drunk. I don't kill you, kill you, your family, your missus, your kids, your dogs, your cats, everything. And this is what's called transference. That is that we may, yes, we may forgive somebody, but actually we transfer our anger with that person onto somebody else. So I've noticed that myself. Maybe really provoked by somebody who's done something really bad to me. I could dob them into the police or, or whatever, but I don't, and I forgive them. They oh, I'm tired. <laughs> A good bloke, sort of. But then I'll get real cranky with somebody else who didn't do anything much to me. I've transferred my anger with that person whom I supposedly forgave onto somebody else. I'll give you an example. You're in a supermarket, let's say you're in Tesco's, and the girl behind the, uh, the, the checkout is texting with somebody on her phone. And she's very interested in, in this texting. And then it comes my turn to pay for my shopping. And she starts going crazy with me. Why did, why did you put that on the thing? Why do And you think, excuse me, why are you so mad with me? I'm just trying to, you know, pay for my shopping. Why is she so mad with me or you? Is because when she was texting with her ex or with her kid or with her, with her mum or with her neighbour, she's very angry with that person. Oh, but then you and me happen to be standing there. So we get the anger. 
a guy has a bad day at work and he comes in and he starts kicking the cat. <laughs> it's not funny, Dave. <laughs> it's not funny if a bloke kicks a cat. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Transferring the anger or whatever, frustration, from the real where, where he should be onto something else. And so you, you see David forgiving and you think, oh, wonderful. He lets all go, but then he goes and beats up Nabal. And you go back and you think, well, when he did forgive Saul, and when he did let Saul go free, was that really 10 out of 10? Maybe not. Maybe not. And really, man at his best, you and me, in our best moments, in our best aspects, in the best aspects of our lives, the best things we do, say and think, all our righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. Who has got pure motives? And I am convinced that nobody actually does have pure motives, unfortunately. The mo- human motivation is not pure. Well, only the Lord Jesus is pure. Um, and I think, how can you examine yourself? Well, how can you examine yourself? Paul says that when we break bread... Let a man examine himself, and so let him take of that bread and drink of that cup. I would say that it is only by standing, as it were, in front of the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, it is only by doing that that true self-examination is elicited within us. When the Lord Jesus was a baby, Simeon came to the temple, picked him up, cuddled him in his arms and said, This child is set to fall and rise again, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And he said to Mary, And a sword is going to pierce your soul also. So I think he's saying that when the Lord Jesus was pierced, as he was going to be pierced on the cross, this was so that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. And I suggest that it is only by, as it were, standing there, reconstructing in your own mind the Son of God dying for me and rising again for me, that you do come to this self-knowledge, that you are able to actually understand yourself. Now, <clears throat> the other thing you notice with, uh, with David is that he is treating Nabal and his family, just how Saul treated him. Because Saul comes out chasing after him with 3,000 men. And David says to Saul, why are you chasing me? You've got 3,000 men on my case. And I, he says, I am a dead dog. And you're coming with 3,000 men. You're obsessed with getting me, aren't you, Saul? What are you doing this for? But he does the same. He takes 400 of his men to go and destroy Nabal, his missus, and his kids, and his animals. Same disproportionate response. So, actually, what Saul did to David is what David wants to do to Nabal. And so you see this circle that the abused will abuse. This is what happens. You see it all over society. You see it in people you know. 
that someone is badly treated and they go and treat other people how they were done. You do people as you were done. This life. This is absolutely right, intrinsic. This is part of being human. Unfortunately, it's human society. And Solzhenitsyn, the red circle, it was a philosophy of Russian history. And his idea was, but we keep repeating ourselves. But you can, forgetting the Russian world, you can look at it, any society, any nation, any people, any person, it's the same, it's a circle. What was done to me, I shall do to others. And I would suggest that the only definite way to stop the circle, to stop the merry-go-round, is through the experience of God's grace that because he has been so gracious to me, and therefore I will stop this. And as we know, there are so many people who are lost in this circle. It's their whole lives. It's how they live. It's how they think every moment. They don't realise it, but it is. What was done to them, they will do to others. It is almost an automatic reaction. It is what it is to be human, almost. But we can stop that. And you have to, because if you want to be free, if you want, you know, the Lord Jesus said, if the Son will make you free, you shall be free indeed. If you want to be made free from apparently inevitable auto-reaction to how you were treated, this is the only way. Absolutely the only way. So, David is treating um, Saul... Uh, sorry, he's treating Nabal how Saul had treated him. And so when David forgives Saul and says, okay, yeah, I could kill you, but I won't, you see, that's nuanced. Man is best. He's not quite as wonderful spiritually as he might appear to be. Right, and you get that in verse 6, where he, first of all, he sends his messengers to Nabal and he says, peace to you and peace to your family. But just... Uh, and peace to all that you have. But then the slightest provocation, no, no, I'm not going to pay, I'm not going to send you some food. Wow, I'm going to kill you and your family and all that you have. So his words, oh, peace to you and your family and all that you have, this was just tokenism, this was just words. Unless we all know words are cheap. So again, it is a case of challenging ourselves as to whether we mean what we mean. We are baptised into Jesus. We address each other as brother or sister. But do I really think you're my brother? Do I really think you're my sister? Well, he, uh, he replies rudely, doesn't he? Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Um, I don't respect this guy. I don't recognise him. He's just a runaway slave. And verse 13, David puts on his sword and his 400 men put their swords on. But when they meet... Abigail, David takes his sword off. And you know, there was an old time when David put on a sword and took it off, and it's when he, fought, when he was going to fight with Goliath. And Saul gives him the, uh, his sword, and David puts it on, girds himself with a sword, then he says, ah, no, I can't do this, takes it off. Well, I think the saving grace of David was that he did have some kind of humility to him, 
And he did have the ability to stop and step back. And I think that that's significant, that he had that ability to stop and step back. And so, yeah, that's, I think, the message for us. There's a couple of seats down here, guys. A couple of spare, oh, spare seats. Cheers. The other thing is, you see that David comes with 400 men. Just bear that in mind. And the servant runs to Abigail and says, oh, we've got, uh, you know, David's coming with 400 men to kill us. So Abigail quickly takes massive presents, massive amounts of expensive food and stuff, sends them ahead of her to David to placate him, and then she comes behind and falls down before him. If you know your Bible, this is very similar to something else that happened. When Jacob met his brother Esau, and Esau came against Jacob with 400 men. Same number. What does Jacob do? He sends massive presents of animals and all this sort of stuff as a present to Jacob, to Esau, to sort of soften him up, and then he himself comes. So she acts just like Jacob did. And you see, that is the advantage of knowing the text of the Bible. Because the Bible, in one sense, is history. It's biography. And at a time when you read it, you think, ah, yeah, it's just history. It's stuff that happened years ago. But God's Word is a living Word. And suddenly, crisis comes up in your life out of left field. You're hit with something. And then you can respond just as somebody did in the Bible. And that's what I think she did. Oh, wow, I'm in the same position as Jacob. I've got a guy coming against me with 400 men to kill me. I better send a light of presence and come down humble in front of him. Well, David said, verse 21, this guy Nabal has done, has returned evil for good. I did him good and he's done me evil. That's exactly what Saul says. He says to David when he comes down all humble and all cool and all that, he says, David, I did you evil and you did me good. I returned evil for your good. And David's like, okay, yeah, and I'll forgive you. And I said that, okay, he did that to Saul, but then Nabal is the same. He, he returns evil for good on David. Oh, I'm going to kill you. And he, his response is severe. And then we come on to this interesting verse where David says, May God deal with me very severely if I leave alive one that pisseth against a wall. That's from the King James. Well, a lot of Bibles say, If I leave any males alive. But male human beings don't actually need to urinate against a wall. What urinates against a wall is a dog. So I think what is... What does pisseth mean? Daddy, what does pisseth mean? When you're a father, you have to answer all sorts of questions. It means to go to the loo. To have a wee, to urinate. So... Caleb was the ancestor of, um, of Nabal, and Caleb means dog. So what David is saying is, I am going to come and turn you all into dead dogs. I won't leave a single thing that urinates against a wall. 
with dogs that urinates against a wall. Now, why am I going on about this? Because in the chapter before, David has said to Saul, why are you coming against me with 3,000 men? I'm just a dead dog. I, David, I'm a dead dog. Leave me alone. I'm nothing. I'm useless. I'm finished. Leave me alone. Just leave me to die. I'm a dead dog. And now he says to Nabal and his family, I'm going to make you dead dogs. In other words, I'm going to make you like I feel about myself. You get it? He says, I'm a dead dog. I feel a dead dog. I feel useless. Oh, Nabal, you annoyed me. Right, I'm going to make you and your family dead dogs. That's what he's saying. And this is how it is that, for example, the person who feels rubbish about themselves, who thinks they're useless, will get hold of their kids and say, oh, that was rubbish what you did. That was useless. Where's your homework? Oh, that's pathetic. Oh, um, do the washing up. Oh, you didn't do the washing up properly. Look at it. Rubbish. Right? You make the kid feel bad about themselves because you feel so bad about yourself. And that is what society is full of. People doing other people down because they feel so down about themselves. So you, you don't need to read psychology, just read the Bible. It's David saying, I'm a dead dog. And then he goes, oh, I want to make you guys, David and his family, a bunch of dead dogs. And as I said, the only way to break the circle is to just surrender to God and to Jesus and to their way and to see that you have been given a huge grace and on that basis you genuinely forgive. That is why in the bigger purpose of God he has the chance to kill Saul in chapter 24. He doesn't. He forgives him in between the commas. Chapter 25 there's this weird business with Abigail and Nabal where he wants to kill Nabal but he's stopped And then chapter 26, God gives him another chance to kill Saul and he doesn't do it again. It's as if, you see, God is a teacher. God is educating you. He's saying, right, here's a test. Well, yes, you passed that apparently. You got the right answer, but I don't think you really understood why. Okay, I'll give you another one, chapter 25. Oh, you failed it. Ah, but I'll explain to you what now, through Abigail. You get it? Right, chapter 26, then let's do it again. It is like a school teacher teaching kids high school math. That's how you do it. Here's a problem. Well, your kid answered it correctly, but I don't think they understood why. Well, I'll give you another one. Oh, yeah, you failed that, didn't you? Let me just explain to you what happened. Okay. Well, now we'll do it again. Chapter 26. And you think, what is man? That you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him. Who are we? bunch of you know, dust, ashes, water, so on. That God Almighty should be that interested in me. Hey, you know, why? And this is the amazing thing, that he is. That he is mindful of the work of his hands, and he has a heart and a mind for us, because he created us, and because, believe it or not, we are special to him. Absolutely. So, good to see you, Steve. When Abigail saw David, she falls at his feet and she says, On me, my lord, be the blame for this. My husband is a fool. His name is Nabal, which means fool, and he is a fool. My husband's an idiot, she's saying. Verse 26 says, she's basically saying, May everybody who's against you, David, be destroyed like Saul and like my husband Nabal. 
It's a death wish on her husband. He's an idiot, she's saying, and may God destroy him, but he's going to make you David king. You are going to be the king of Israel, as Samuel has prophesied. So don't mess up before that happens by killing me. And that's exactly what David had been telling himself in the previous chapter. Here's Saul, I could kill him. But then he says, no, I won't do that. He's the Lord's anointed. I'm going to be king anyway, because God said I'm going to be king. I will wait for God to kill Saul. And so when Abigail says this to him, she is actually his alter ego, if you get it. She is actually David's better side talking to him. The Bible's wonderful. People ask me, why do you believe the Bible? Because it's so psychologically credible. Absolutely wonderful. The words that she says to him, oh, don't kill him. It's all going to be okay. You're going to be king anyway. It's not for you to kill, kill people. That's just what he'd been telling himself in the previous chapter. So, and that's so true to life. You know, I, I might think of doing something, and Cindy says, no, don't do that. Don't go that path. Don't make that decision. And she gives me the reasons, and it could be my better side talking to myself. She's my better half. You know, it's what happens in life. And so, she is telling him, look, you're going to be the king. Don't, um, verse 28, don't let evil be found in you all your days. And she keeps calling him, my lord. Fourteen times she calls David, my lord. Oh, my lord. My lord, my lord, my lord. Don't forget, she is a beautiful woman. And she's very smart. That's what it says to start with. What were her motives? On the level of Sunday school Christianity, simple reading of the text of the Bible, you would read this and say, oh, Abigail was a wonderful woman, very spiritual, very godly woman, who persuaded David to do the right thing. And that is, uh, yes, that's not wrong. You're not wrong. But it is also the case that clearly she was also motivated by self-interest. She and her kids were going to be killed. And so, she's out for self-preservation. Simple as that. She wants to save herself. And so all this highfalutin reasoning that, oh, you know, Yahweh will make you king and you mustn't get uh, your hands dirty with unnecessary bloodshedding, and all this. Uh, you're a wonderful man. You've never done anything wrong in your life. So don't let, uh, don't, don't spoil your record by killing me and my kids. Yeah, all that is true. Well, I'm true. But it's nuanced by the fact that she wants to persuade David not to kill her as he is intending to, and not to kill her kids as he was intending to. So. Again, you've got this theme of purity of motive, whether somebody is pure in their motives or not. Because don't tell me that there was not an element of come on from Abigail to David. There's this beautiful woman at his feet, looking up at him, 14 times calling him, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. You are wonderful. You never did anything wrong. You are the most awesome person. Uh, please don't kill me. 
And then he says, verse 31, you're going to be king over Israel. My husband Nabal, who is a fool, is going to be judged by God. And then she says, when all this happens, verse 31, then remember me. Well, that's giving him the come on, isn't it? I'm, I'm good to, I'd love to marry you. I mean, don't forget David had killed Goliath and all the women were out there singing songs that, oh, you, you David killed his ten thousands. It was the heartthrob of all the, all the women of Israel. And that would have included Abigail. So, what am I saying? Is Abigail a good woman or a bad woman? Yes, she was a good woman. And what she says is all good. But you see, it's nuanced. Was David right to forgive Saul? Yes, absolutely. Was he a good man in doing that, in refusing to murder Saul? Yeah, he's a good man. But it's all nuanced. And so the challenge is, what are your motives? What are my motives? What are our motives for being here? What are our motives for anything? What are our motives for reading the Bible? What are our motives for being a Christian? What are our motives for anything? Because when you sift through as just some fairly random chapter like this, what do you see? You see David, you see Abigail, making apparently good decisions, but then failing, and it's nuanced. And so, yeah, she gets what she wants. Her husband is struck, and he dies. And yes, well done, David. Well done, Abigail. You didn't have an affair. You didn't just, they just fall in love with each other. And you go, oh, yeah, well, I'll take her anyway as my wife. No, they wait, and God rewards them, I think, for that, because he strikes Nabal, verse 38, and after 10 days, Nabal dies, and so they can get married in a more normal sort of way. But even then, you think, oh, it's a classic romance that comes to a beautiful ending. Um, well, look at verse 43. David's already been married. He's married to Michael, Saul's daughter. Uh, that's... Uh, messed up, and he's also been married to a Hinoam, he's married to a Hinoam who was Saul's wife, I not say that here, but she was and God himself says I have given your uh, I've given your master's wives into your bosom he said so the thing is, and you never hear any more about Abigail, by the way she fades to grey and disappears so you see that it is not it is not all so black and white. Human motivation, you and me at our best, at our very best, at our most generous, our most forgiving, our most committed, our most righteous. Our righteousness is still as filthy rags. And so, I repeat again Paul's words in the context of the breaking of bread. Paul says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. When you take the bread, you're connected with the body of the Lord Jesus. When you take the cup, you are connected with his blood, with his life. This really is how it is. And so, inevitably, you examine yourself. Inevitably, you do. Because how can one be passive before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's have a moment to examine ourselves, as uh, Paul says, and let us take that bread and drink of that cup.
Heavenly Father, through the Lord Jesus, we thank you for this bread that symbolizes the body of the Lord and the cup that symbolizes his, his blood, his life, his giving for us. And Father, we realize, bowing before him as sinners before the cross of Calvary, that we have not been purely motivated. And it is so difficult, Father, for us to be pure. But we ask for your help and for your strength that we might be. And that you will cleanse our consciences through the blood of your Son. That we might be pure and purer for you. For his sake. Amen. Amen.